We're going to be learning through the Sefer HaMedrash Vahamasa and Parshas Chayesara. There are two pieces on Drush and then one piece on Halacha. So the first piece is trying to explain the story of Avraham's search for a wife for Yitzchak. And he points out that there's an unusual feature of the language in this story. It begins with Avraham summoning Avdo, Zikan Beso, Hamoshel Bechol Lo, his servant, the elder of his house who ruled over all that was his. So that's a reference to Eliezer, but it gives him all sorts of titles. And then he starts talking about finding a wife for his son, Livni. So he doesn't refer to Yitzchak, he just calls him my son. Then Avraham tells Eliezer not to take a local girl. He should go to his homeland to find a wife, Livni Yitzchak. So now he calls him my son Yitzchak. So he refers to him both by who he is as well as his proper name. Then Eliezer asks a question, what if that woman doesn't want to come back? And the Torah calls him Vayomer Elav HaEved. Now he's just called the servant with none of the titles that he had earlier. So he asks him, should I bring your son back there? And again, he just calls him Bincha. He does not refer to his name of Yitzchak. And Avram has a whole conversation with him. He keeps telling him, you're not allowed to bring my son back there. But again, they don't use the name Yitzchak. Then when Eliezer is telling Lavan and Besuel the story of how he found Rivka, so he refers once that he knew this was the wife for Yitzchak. And then after that, he keeps referring to him as Bini, as the son of his master, Avraham. So it goes back and forth with how the Torah refers to Eliezer and how it refers to Yitzchak, either by his proper name or as the son of Avraham. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa explains this by explaining the whole story of what's going on over here, that first of all, Avraham feels there are no local girls that Yitzchak could marry. What about Hanefesh Asher Asu Becharan, all the people that Avraham and Sarah brought closer to Hashem? They had a whole large community where there are no girls in that community who had fear of God who could marry Yitzchak. And there's also Einar Eshkol and Mamre. Avram had a whole group of friends that he lived with. So what about their daughters? There must have been a girl locally who had Yiras Shamayim who would have been a worthy wife for Yitzchak. So why is Avraham so insistent that Eliezer has to go back to his homeland in order to find a wife? So the Hamedrash Vahamasa explains that it's true. If all Avraham was looking for was a girl with Yiras Shamayim, he could have found one locally. But he wasn't just looking for Yiras Shamayim. He also insisted that she has to have good midos, good character. And that Avraham felt you can't teach someone later in life. It has to come from their family. They have to be born into that type of situation with good midos. So Avraham felt that the locals who came from Ham, who was the bad son of Noah, they did not have good midos. So even though Avraham had taught many of them about God, so they did have proper beliefs, but they did not have proper midos. Midos come from the family of shame, which is where Avraham came from. They had the good midos. So that's why Avraham insisted that it's not enough to find a girl from a family that's learned about God that has proper beliefs. It has to be both. A girl who comes from a family of good midos, who also has proper proper beliefs. So this is an interesting distinction. It means that if we're assessing someone's character, then we should look at the family from which they come. 
But if we're assessing their beliefs, their religious views, so then we should look at them themselves, what they believe. When it comes to religious beliefs, it's less important what the family they come from believes and more important what they have studied, as opposed to character and midos, where it's more important the family that they come from. Now, the flip side of all this is that Avraham knows that the people in Padan Aram, the people from his homeland, when they are looking for who to marry, they're not going to ask a lot about religious beliefs because they don't care. They're going to ask about physical things. Is the boy strong? Is he wealthy? Their concerns are going to be in the physical realm, not in the spiritual realm. They might ask a little bit about the family that he comes from, but they're not going to have a lot of questions about his religious spiritual standing. So this is now Avraham's plan to get this shidduch taken care of. He sends the person who's going to be able to answer all the questions that the people in Padan Aram have. So that's why the Torah describes Eliezer as Avdo, his servant, because he would know all the illnesses and all the health of the people in the family because you can't hide anything from the family servants. So if they have any question about whether there's hidden illnesses, Eliezer Eliezer can answer that. Zikan Beso, the elder of his house, meaning he knows the whole history of this family as well. So any questions they have about where the family comes from and what type of family it is, Eliezer can answer. Hamoshel Bechol Asherlo, who runs the whole household, so he knows the financial situation. So any question they have about the finances, he'll be able to answer as well. So the way the Torah describes Eliezer is intended to show us that he was the perfect person to be able to answer any questions that they might have about Yitzchak. But Avram contrasts all of this with his own concerns. He's not worried about whether the family is wealthy and what they look like and the physical things. He's only interested in the spiritual makeup of this girl. And that again has two components. One is her beliefs and one is her character. So that's why Avram invokes the Elokei HaShamayim and Elokei HaAretz, the God of the heavens and the God of the earth. The heavens is a reference to the girl's theological beliefs and the God of earth is a reference to her character traits. How does she get along with other people? How does she behave towards others? So that is exactly the reason why he does not want any of the local girls because even though some of them have the proper theological beliefs, but again, they do not come from a family with good midos. So that's why Avram keeps stressing that it's Bini, it's my son, meaning he comes from the sort of family that has good Mido. So this is not about Yitzchak per se. This is about the fact that he's the son of Avraham and therefore he cannot marry any of the locals, only someone that comes from the family of shame, which is in Avraham's homeland. But now Avraham adds that don't think the only thing that matters is character because theological beliefs also matter. So that's why he calls him Livni Liyitzchak. You have to find someone that both fits with my son, which is proper Midos, as well as Yitzchak, which is someone that has proper beliefs. So that's the whole speech that Avraham is trying to give him. Now says the Torah, Vayomer Elav Ha'eved. So Eliezer responds, but it doesn't give him his titles. It just calls 
calls him the servant. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa explains that what's going on in this scene is that Eliezer is offended. Because imagine what this means for Eliezer. He does come from the Cham families. So even though he's Avraham's leading disciple, he has studied so much about God and theology and he knows all the truths. But now Avraham is telling him that he has bad midos as a result of his family. So Eliezer takes offense to this, and that's why he responds, Ulay lo sova ha'isha Maybe the girl won't want to come with me. So this is Eliezer saying almost a passive-aggressive argument that the girls from those fancy families of shame are probably not even going to be willing to come with me because they're so spoiled and they're so used to getting whatever they want that they're not willing to leave a comfortable life and to come live a life of Yiras Shamayim where they have to follow all the rules of the Torah. So Eliezer is pointing out that these girls that you're saying, Avraham, are so great in their midos, but they're spoiled and they won't be willing to live a life of Yiras Shamayim. So you have to choose, basically, either a girl with Yiras Shamayim who comes from a family other than shame or a girl with proper midos who does not have Yiras Shamayim. And Eliezer concludes, Ha-Hashev Ashiv has bin Chashama. If she doesn't want to come, should I bring your son over there? Meaning Eliezer's implying Maybe you, Avraham, care about the proper family more than you actually care about proper belief. So maybe if the girl doesn't want to leave her hometown, I should take Yitzchak over there. But he doesn't call him Yitzchak. He calls him your son. Meaning maybe being your son and having the right Yichis is more important to you, Avraham, than someone that studied about God on their own. So maybe I should take Yitzchak over there where he'll go back to idolatry. He will not have the proper beliefs, but at least his wife will have Yichis. So Eliezer is really mounting a very strong passive-aggressive argument here that he's implying that Avraham cares more about Yichis than he does about proper belief, which is what Avraham's devoted his whole life to. But Eliezer is again offended because he is someone with proper beliefs and not the proper Yichis, and he feels put down by the whole request of Avraham. So now Avraham responds and he rejects the whole idea of Eliezer, that there has to be a choice between either proper midos or proper belief. And Avraham says, Hashem Hashemelokeh the God of the heavens, which again refers to proper beliefs. So here Avraham drops the whole Elokeh Haaretz, the whole reference to proper midos. And he says, the God of the heavens brought me out of my homeland to this land. So you see that this is the proper place for the development of the proper true theology of one God. So this is the land where we're able to do so, but I still come from my homeland. I was willing to leave it all behind, all the good yiches and all the fancy families in order to come study and spread the word about Hashem. So that's his response to Eliezer. I don't need to choose either or one of these character traits because I can get both of them. Hu yishlach malacholifanecha, Hashem will send an angel to help you find the proper wife, but my son, you don't take back there. So Avraham is insisting that he wants both of these proper belief as well as proper midos. So now Eliezer accepts Avraham's mission. He sees the correctness of Avraham's view and he decides to go ahead and do it loyally as best as he can. So now he comes to Padanaram and now he wants to do a test in order to find the proper wife. So this is very difficult to test someone 
someone that you don't know at all and to get to the core of their character very quickly. Says the Hamedrash Vamasa, there are two ways to do this. Either offend them a little bit, and then you see if they get angry, then you get a sense of them. And if they don't, then you also learn about them. So one way is to offend the person slightly, and that will teach you very quickly about who they are. The other way, he says, is that people who are real tzaddikim generally do their pious behavior quietly. They don't want other people to know about it. And they go to lengths in order to hide all the righteous, pious behavior that they're engaged in. So the way to test someone else is if you see that they understand all of the gimmicks that you're doing in order to hide your own piety. So that tells you that this person must also be pious because they know what it takes in order to hide righteousness and doing mitzvahs. As opposed to someone who thinks that you're just behaving strangely, so it shows that they don't know what it means to try to be pious in private. Now, in this case, Eliezer's mission is to find someone with good midos as well as proper beliefs. So he needs to apply both of these tests together in order to test her character and her piety at the same time. So says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, if we apply this framework, it will explain what Eliezer is doing in this story. He says that the way of manners is that if someone is much stronger than someone else and they see the weaker person doing work which they're not really able to handle, so of course it would be incredibly rude for the stronger person to ask the weaker person who's already struggling to do extra work to help this stronger person out. So for example, when Yaakov shows up at the well and he sees Rachel and she's struggling with filling up the water, so not only does Yaakov not ask a favor of her, but he helps her out because he was stronger and she was weaker. And the same with Moshe when he gets to the well. But Eliezer does exactly the opposite. Here he's a grown man, so he's much stronger than the little girl Rivka. He shows up at the well and instead of helping Rivka out, he has the incredible chutzpah to ask her to give him and his camels water. So this was incredibly rude and it should have annoyed Rivka and yet she did not get annoyed. So that was the first test. Now there was also a religious test because the Torah prohibits feeding your animals in someone else's field. So for other people it makes sense that they should feed their animals in others' fields and then when the animals in their own field they can muzzle it. That way their animal feeds off of other people's produce. So Avraham is doing something Something which goes against the logic. He's muzzling his animals when they're in other people's fields and he's feeding them from his own food. So again, this is something which would seem unusual to someone unless they followed the rules of the Torah and then they would understand it. Now, in this specific story, so both of these tests converge because when Eliezer shows up at the well with his muzzled animals, so he asks Rivka to give water to the animals. So first First of all, this was rude and Rivka was still willing to do it. So that shows good character. But also Rivka doesn't ask him, why were the animals muzzled this whole time? Why didn't you feed them off other people's property? Because she understands the laws of the Torah. They make sense to her. So she's in line with the thinking of Avraham and his family religiously. But now there is a contradiction because who 
who should she give to drink first? Eliezer is thirsty and the animals are thirsty. So manners would say that the person should get first, but the law of the Torah is that the animals should get first. So there's a contradiction between proper manners and the rules of halacha. So Rivka comes up with a brilliant resolution to this problem. She tells Eliezer to give himself to drink, and in the meantime, she will give the camels to drink. So now there's no more contradiction. The rule of halacha is that a person has to give the animals before themselves. But if there's two different people, then one could drink on their own and the other could feed the animals. So that's what Rivka offers to do for Eliezer. And in fact, that's exactly the answer that Eliezer was hoping for. He says that he's going to ask one of the girls to give him to drink. The girl who tells Eliezer to drink on his own. And in the meantime, she'll give the camels to drink. So that's proof that she's aware of the conflict in this case between proper manners and halacha. And she has this brilliant resolution without compromising on either the ethics or the religiousness of it, she came up with a solution. So that's why in that case, Eliezer says, this is the right wife, for Yitzchak on his own, meaning religiously, as well as Imadoni for my master Avraham, meaning in terms of the proper manners, that she comes from the right family. So that's why in that Pasuk, he uses the proper name of Yitzchak. So now he goes on a bit of a tangent, and he talks about how people who are wealthy make big weddings, but they don't want to include the poor. And this goes against the Torah. If someone is making a festivity, they're celebrating. So then they should certainly include the poor in that. That's the real way to make a fancy wedding, according to the Torah, not only to celebrate physically, but also spiritually by making sure that the poor and the needy are also getting something and their tzedakah as part of the celebration. Then he also goes on a tangent that this is the ideal model of the Torah for two spouses, that they should both be incredibly humble when it comes to themselves, so they should think very little of themselves, but they should treat their spouse with tremendous respect. So each person should treat the other with respect, but be humble for themselves. So he describes this in the context of Rivka. And then he concludes this speech by explaining that Eliezer explains to Rivka the spiritual power of Avraham and Yitzchak, the family that she's going to marry in. To. But then when he comes to speak to Besuel and Lavan, who he knows that they don't care about spirituality, they only care about wealth and physical things. So there Eliezer suddenly changes and all he starts talking about is how wealthy Avraham is. He has so much gold and silver and Sarah gave birth in her old age, meaning there's not going to be any other heirs and that Avraham gave everything to Yitzchak. So all he keeps describing is how fancy and powerful and wealthy Avraham and his family are. So there he doesn't talk at all about Yitzchak by name because there he's just trying to sell the wealth and the power of the family of Avraham. So what's important is that Yitzchak is the son of Avraham. So that explains why he keeps referring to him as the son of his master in that part of the story because for Lavan and Besuel, he's trying to speak their language, which is one of worship.
worldly success and wealth. So that's the first speech about what to look for in a spouse. The second speech has to do with the Haftorah. The story in the Haftorah is that David gets old and there's a rebellion by his son Adoni Yahu. And Nasan Hanavi conspires with Bathsheba, the mother of Shlomo, that she should go into David and start discussing the whole issue of whether Shlomo is going to be the king or Adoni Yahu. And then Nasan Hanavi is going to come in in the middle of that conversation and he's going to fill in David about all the things that Adonia is doing and how he's trying to take over the kingdom. And then David realizes that there's a big problem. So he tells Bathsheba that he's going to deal with it and make Shlomo the king. So that's the story in brief in the Haftorah. And Ahmedrish Ramasa, as usual, has a bunch of questions on the different language that's used and how different people are referred to. So in order to explain this story, the Ahmedrish Ramasa begins with a very important insight. He says that there are times when people make trouble in the world and their goal is not to be successful. Their goal is to be famous and they don't even care if they fail at what they're doing. They're happy to go down with the ship. They're happy for it to be a tremendous failure so long as they create trouble and become famous in the process. So sometimes people make trouble because they're actually looking to accomplish something or gain something, but other times people make trouble just to become famous. Now, those people, if you argue with them and you try to show them that what they're doing is wrong, so it only reinforces what they're doing because the whole point is to get attention. And now they have people arguing with them and that's exactly what they want. So even if you give them all the arguments in the world to explain why what they're doing is going to fail, they'll still continue doing it because that's how they get attention and they like the fact that people are now arguing and talking about them all the time. So he says that was the character of Adonia. It wasn't so much that he wanted to be the king. He wanted to be the rebel to get attention and to become famous because there's a character, Yonasan, who tries to warn him that he's going to fail and Adonia doesn't care because that's not the point of his rebellion to succeed. It's to get attention, which he's doing. Now, the Hamedrash Vahamasa continues and he explains that Adonia did not think he was going to be the permanent king because he understood that David had already said that Shlomo is going to be the king. So what he thinks Adonia's actual plan was is that he wanted to be the temporary king, sort of the custodian until Shlomo grew up because Shlomo was a very young child at this point. So even though he was going to become the king eventually, but there needed to be an adult that helped him out for the next few years until Shlomo grew up. And this we have many cases of historically, someone who helped out the young prince until he grew up and could be the king. So that's what Adonio wanted to be, this sort of temporary king who helped out and had an elevated status while Shlomo was growing up. Now, obviously, Adonia's plan was that once he got a foothold in the door and he was the temporary king and after David died, then he would be able to coordinate taking over the whole thing and install himself as the permanent king. So it was going to lead to a full rebellion. So that's how he explains the Pasuk. It describes that Adonia misnase lemor, ani emloch. Adonia was elevating himself. In other words, he was acting like he just wanted to be the temporary king. But it was all an act because really he was planning ani emloch, 
I will become eventually the full king. So this explains why Adonia is able to get some of David's closest allies like Yoav and Avyasar HaKohen, some of the people who for decades had been committed to David's kingdom and now suddenly they switch sides and they join Adonia. So how was Adonia able to convince these leading figures in David's government to join his side against David? Says the Hamedrish Vahamasa, because he was a smooth talker and he explained to them that his motives are not to go against David and his kingship. It's to assist him because David is old, etc., etc. He's not understanding how dangerous it is to have a young boy as the king and it's going to be a vacuum of leadership and eventually the enemies of David are going to be able to take over. So Adonia presents himself as the great defender of David's kingship. He's the one that's trying to look out and plan ahead, whereas David is just handing it over to a little boy like Shlomo, who's going to lose the whole kingdom. So that's why Yoav and Avyasar and the other David loyalists join Adonia's rebellion, because they get convinced that this is the way to protect David's kingship. So now even though their intentions are right, but practically they did the wrong thing because they went against what David wanted. And the Hamedrash Ramasa says that if you look through history, these temporary kings never really worked out. There was always a problem with having someone in there who was not the actual king. And he says a very interesting insight. He says that someone who's the actual king has a vested interest in working hard and doing the right thing and making a successful country so that they can pass along the kingdom to their own children and their own heirs, as opposed to someone who's just doing it temporarily. So they know that this position is not going to go to their own children. So they're not motivated to keep the kingdom properly. They just do whatever's convenient for them in the moment, but they're not motivated to try to build something for the future. And he quotes a tshuva. I'm not sure what what this is, but the Chuvis Shin Aleph Reish. So maybe Shulchan Arba or Shagas Aryeh. I can't track this down, but it's a tshuva in Choshen Mishpat Simen Zion where this Gadol writes that the reason the Torah said that the king should be a hereditary position is for the good of the people. Because since the king wants to make sure that his children have a kingdom to inherit, so he's not going to just do what's convenient in the moment, but he's going to work very, very hard to make sure that it's a successful country country in the future. So we think of a democracy as the best government, and it probably is nowadays, but there is a benefit to a hereditary monarchy because the king is very invested in the good of the whole country for his own self-interest to pass his position along to his own children. So this is an interesting insight, and that's why Yoav and Evyasser were wrong, because having Adonia as the temporary king would not have been a good idea. Now, now, Adonia is even worse because he was secretly planning to overthrow the whole monarchy of David and take over himself against his father's wishes that Shlomo should take over. So Nasan Hanavi was the only one that saw through Adonia's plan and he realized that he's trying to become the full-time permanent king. So that's why he warns Bathsheba that she and Shlomo are in danger if Adonia gets into office. But now Bathsheba's in a tough position 
because she can't just go to David and make this allegation against Adonia that he's leading a rebellion when all Adonia has said so far is that he wants to help Shlomo grow into being the king. So that's what Nasan tells Batsheva to go tell David that Shlomo is supposed to be the Molech and the Yoshev al Kisei She says two things. He's supposed to be the ruler and to sit on the seat of the king. So what are those two different things? So the Amedrash Ramasa explains that sitting on the seat of the king is the person who's the king who eventually is going to be the permanent king. The Molech is the regent who's going to raise the king. So Batsheva's argument to David is that Shlomo is supposed to be both of those things. He's supposed to become the immediate ruler after David and Adonia should not be the regent at all. So why is Adonia acting like he's going to be the regent in the beginning of Shlomo's kingship. So that's what Batsheva said, because since she was the mother of Shlomo, so she couldn't just come out and accuse Adonia of leading a rebellion. But now this is Nassan's plan. He says, I'm going to come in as you're speaking to David. I'll fill in what you said. Meaning Nassan as the Navi is able to say much more explicitly that Adonia is actually leading a full-fledged rebellion. So that's why he comes comes in to reinforce what Batsheva just told David, but he says that the Jews want to know who is going to be the permanent king. In other words, Nassan makes it clear to David that the issue is not whether Adonia is going to be a regent and then Shlomo is going to take over, but Adonia is actually planning to take over permanently and that is a full-fledged rebellion against David. So Nassan is the one that gives David the full report of Adonia's rebellion. So now David realizes that there's a serious problem and he has to make Shlomo the king and give him the full powers right away even before he dies. So that's what he proceeds to do. So that's his explanation of the story. Now the halachic discussion focuses on a case where someone marries a woman through a messenger. You can do kiddushin through a messenger. So Rashi quotes from the Medrash when Eliezer tells Rivka's family the story of his mission. So he uses the phrase, Ulay lo isha. He asked Avraham, maybe the wife, the woman, won't want to go with me back to marry Yitzchak. So the Torah leaves out a vav. It says, Eli. So Rashi quotes that Eliezer actually had a daughter that he was hoping would marry Yitzchak and there was some sort of unconscious wish that he hoped that the girl he found would not want to come back and then Yitzchak would end up marrying his own daughter. Now the commentators are bothered. Why does this medrash appear when Eliezer retells the story to Rivka's family and not when he actually says the sentence to Avraham? So based on this, the Hamedrash Vahamasa wants to propose a different explanation of this word, different than Rashi. So he quotes that the note of Yehuda has a discussion about this issue in Halacha, and he makes a very important point. He asks the basic question, how can you appoint a messenger to do Kiddushin? Because through marrying this woman, it affects the rest of the world, quote unquote, because now nobody else can marry her. So it affects everybody else 
they lose something when a man marries this woman. And there is a rule of tofes lebalchov b'mokom shechav la'acherim. If someone goes and grabs money to pay back the creditor in a case where it's going to lose money for other creditors. So they're not allowed to do that. So this should be a parallel case. They're taking this woman for this man, which means that she cannot marry other men. So other people are losing out. So how can you have a messenger in this case? Says the note of Yehuda, the way it works is based on another principle in halacha of migo de zachi If one could acquire something for themselves, so then they could acquire it for someone else. Because now the rest of the world is not losing out because this messenger could have acquired the object for themselves and anyways, the rest of the world would not have gotten it. So they're also able to get the object on behalf of the person who sent them to do so. So that's how it works in the case of a messenger for Kiddushin, since the messenger could have also married her. So anyways, she would then be prohibited to everybody else. So he's able to do so for the man who sent him as a messenger. Now, what happens if the messenger is in fact prohibited to marry her? So how could he be a messenger for Kiddushin? So there's another explanation because the woman has free will who she wants to marry. So you can't really say that this messenger is prohibiting her on the rest of the world. She is allowed to choose that she doesn't want to marry the rest of the world. She only wants to marry the man who sent the messenger. So that's another reason why a messenger for Kiddushin works because it's not the same as taking an object which has no free will. The woman, on the other hand, chooses who she wants to marry. So you can't really apply this idea that the Kiddushin is prohibiting her on the rest of the world when maybe she doesn't want to marry the rest of the world. So those are the two theoretical bases for a messenger of Kiddushin, either because the messenger himself could marry her or because she has free will. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, that's what's going on in these psukim. Eliezer is, so to speak, explaining how he's able to be a messenger for Kiddushin, the two theoretical bases in halacha of how this works. So he explains to Rivka's family, first of all, Ulay lo isha. Maybe the woman is not going to want to go with me, meaning she has free will. You can't force a Kiddushin. So since she has free will, that's why a messenger for Kiddushin is able to work. It's different than taking an object. But it's written without a vav, which says, Eli, to me. So Eliezer is saying the other basis of Kiddushin is since I'm able to marry her on my own, so then I can be a messenger for Kiddushin. So this is a very clever interpretation. The Hamedrash Ramasa says that obviously he's not saying that Besuel or Rivka's family knew anything about the laws of Kiddushin or that Eliezer was actually trying to tell them this. It's just a cute reading of this comment of the Medrash. And at the end of the day, he's accepting Rashi's interpretation. He's just suggesting suggesting another element of different hints that we could find in the words of the Medrash. There's endless meanings, and this is another cute point that could be brought out.